This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right, a lot happening in the political world here in the U.S. and certainly over in Japan. That's where the president of the United States is. But last night we heard the second of two big old debates from the Democratic side. 20 candidates over two nights down in Miami. So what did they say and what are we expecting the president to come home with from Japan? We're going to put those questions to Shannon Pettypiece. She is White House correspondent for Bloomberg. She joins us on the phone from the nation's capital. Hello, Shannon. Hello, guys. Hi. Love checking in with you on a Friday. So let's start with the Dems because they get a little bit of fireworks, especially last night. Harris on Biden. Not sure anybody saw that coming. What'd you say? Well, what I can tell you is from a Trump world perspective, where my brain sort of lives, uh, things went um, exactly as planned and as they hoped they would. So the president's advisors were hoping to see, uh, one, the Democrats sort of uh, fight against themselves um, and and start to uh, tear each other apart and do the type of damage now so Trump and his campaign won't have to do that later on. Uh, They were also hoping to see the Democrats move what they consider further to the left than where swing voters and moderate voters are at. So talking about things like uh, uh, getting rid of private insurance, repealing the tax cuts, uh, a little bit of conversation about uh, abortion, um, providing health care to undocumented immigrants. These are all issues that came up that the Trump campaign was hoping w- would and that they think will turn off swing voters and moderate voters when it gets to a uh, general election. You know, Shannon, I also do wonder, you know, He's got such a full plate, so it's interesting that, of course, you know, he checked in to watch the debates. But I do wonder, too, because he's tweeted about it as well, you know, how much he wants to help control the conversation going forward. We we saw how effective he was in past debates, right, in either giving someone a nickname or something, and that gained a lot of momentum and I think to some extent helped shape public opinion. And I do wonder that he understands that and is kind of being involved in the process for the Democrats as well here. Right. So uh, a re-election for a president is usually a referendum on that president's four years. Uh, what would be in his advantage is to make it as much of a choice between him and the other candidate as he can. Mm-hmm. And to do that, he's going to have to brand his opponent in a strategic way uh, that makes it look like a a choice, that not just a referendum, but that if you go with candidate X, you will lose your tax cuts, lose your private insurance, uh, lose the America security, whatever his messaging ends up being, to, to turn that into a choice, because that's where he thinks uh, he can be the strongest. If it is just a referendum on, on his presidency, on his style, uh, that's going to be a weaker position to go into for a reelection. All right. So let's talk a little uh, G20. What are you hearing so far and what do we expect to hear this weekend? What are the going to be the key moments? President Xi's uh, meeting with Trump obviously leading the way, it, it would seem. Yeah, I think that Xi media is going to be the one that stands to produce the most tangible results. Um, 
he earlier uh, today had a breakfast with um, Mohammed bin Salam. Uh, seemed to be, or, or he's he's going to. They, they uh, tomorrow they shook hands today and had a rather warm exchange today. He had what appeared to be a warm exchange earlier in the day with Putin. Uh, nothing tangible really that we know of yet came out of that. But the Xi meeting, there is an expectation that something could come out of this meeting to restart talks with China. She uh, made some comments earlier in the day that signaled um, he was not going into this meeting, I guess, um, with a very favorable impression of the status quo. I think he essentially said that these bullying tactics don't work very well. Uh, and so it's going to be up to the two of them to see if they can get um, things started here on a deal. And obviously, the Chinese economy, and as you and everyone else has reported, has, has been really hurt by these tariffs. Yeah. Um, if they this drags out, though, into 2020, and now we are in sort of campaign re-election 2020 mode, all of a sudden, there is going to be a lot more at stake for President Trump. So getting this deal done now, as we sit here in summer 2019, is excellent timing for President Trump, if it drags into 2020, and let's say he is able to get a deal right before the election, that would look good. But if there is no deal, and of course these tariffs take time to for their effect to be felt, but if they start being felt, if it starts to drag on the economy, then that puts a lot of pressure on President Trump here. So right now it seems like a lot of the pressure is on the Chinese and Xi to get this done. But if we're in this position next year at the same time, the tables might turn on Trump, and yeah. it's a question about who can hang out if the Chinese can hang on long enough. So, hey, Sh- Shannon, just kind of lay out the weekend for us. I'm just thinking, right, he meets with Prince Mohammed, I think, is it 8.15 a.m. Yes, uh, local time? Yes. Yeah, give us an idea of what we need to kind of watch out for. Um, so that meeting will take place uh, uh, with the crown prince will be tomorrow. Then he travels to Korea. Mm-hmm. And, and so then I think some of the headlines could be coming out about uh, what happens next with North Korea. He has said that he won't be meeting. There's not going to be any surprise meeting with Kim Jong-un. I mean, of course, there <laughs> could all yeah. anything. There's is always possible. a chance. Um, yeah. it, we, there's nothing publicly made about him going to the DMZ, though that has something that they have discussed in past trips. Uh, so right now, um, I think there could be some surprises that happen over the weekend with Korea. But if everything stays on schedule, I think it's just going to be um, additional conversations sort of about what comes next uh, in that meeting with uh, in that relationship with Kim Jong-un. And if they are going to have another meeting face to face at some point down the road, we might get a, a, a timeline or some sort of sense on that. And then 1130 a.m. local time is the meeting with President Xi, correct? Uh, you know, you probably know. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> Sorry. But we have a story on the Bloomberg terminal. You can find out more. Yes. Uh, I think it's about, uh, well, uh, yeah. getting close yeah. to the middle of the night in right. Japan right now. So well, it'll be a busy we weekend, tomorrow, right? That will happen. Yeah, as always. Well, and Shannon, we know we'll be catching up with you and your colleagues because we're also going to be expecting, I would yeah. imagine, some more tweets from the president. He's been uh, pretty vocal yeah. about that uh, SCOTUS so, decision I'm- as well on the census. Shannon Pettypiece, always great to catch up with you, White House correspondents for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from D.C. Oh, 
That's exactly what Johnny Ive is doing. Time to fly, leaving Some walkout music for Johnny Ive. <laughs> I feel like he'd have something a little hipper. I don't know. I don't know. REO Ouch. Speedwagon? Ouch. REO's yeah. calling. You yeah. know, nice, yeah. Jason. What's up, bro? That hurts. All right, so Apple shares slightly lower today. A few stories to unpack. One, of course, is what we're just alluding to. News we got after the closing bell last night. Apple's design chief, Johnny Ive, leaving the company. And then there's a report about Apple moving its Mac Pro production to China. Mark Gurman, yeah, not being able to coast on this Friday. He's having a busy day. He's technology reporter at Bloomberg News. All things Apple for us here at Bloomberg. He's uh, there in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Mark, you have a great story about Johnny Ive, and you it's entitled Inside Apple's Long Goodbye to, Z- to Design Chief Johnny Ive. Tell us a little bit about the significance of his departure and the implications for the company, if there are some. <laughs> it's a great headline, isn't it? Um, this is the biggest executive departure, executive shift at Apple, the world's perhaps most important company, since Steve Jobs passed away in 2011 and Tim Cook became CEO. I absolutely cannot overstate how big of a deal this is. But what our story was trying to paint the picture of, and I hope it did a good job of doing that, is that this guy has been out the door already for three or four years. This is what's becoming official, what has been known behind the scenes. He has been gone from Apple, coming into the office about two days a week and essentially working from home the other days, if not just a couple more days than two a week. And so, and yet, and yet, uh, his departure is significant in the sense that people were comforted comforted by the fact that that he was around, right? You know, that, that he was such a stable force and such a through line really back to some of the iconic products and and there was this notion and your story lays this out so well that and and they I think Steve Jobs even said like he gets this more than than anyone else that feels like a lot of institutional history in in one dude yes apple is johnny ive and johnny ive is apple apple is a product company they come out with software they come out with hardware they come out with services and all of these things, when Steve Jobs was around, flowed through Steve Jobs' brain, right? That was the you know visual representation, the tangible objects, the software and services of his imagination. After Jobs died, that became Ive's job. Not that Ive wasn't already doing that alongside Jobs for years, but that all fell on Ive's shoulders. So now the person who basically is Apple is gone. So what does it mean for the company? I mean, investors of the stock, I guess at its lows, it was down about, the shares were down about 1.35%, so just a little bit lower. They're now just down about eight-tenths of a percent. What does it mean for, you know, the long-standing or the long outlook here for Apple? You know, I think that story hasn't been told yet. Mm. I think it's not going to become clear what it means for Apple's design acumen for probably three to five years. The, the roadmaps here uh, of designs are so long, they could go, you know... I'll give you an example. So the iPad launched in 2010, right? Mm-hmm. They had iPad prototypes, the early incarnations of that device, as early as, I would say, 2002, 2003, 2004 at the latest, right? So that's, you know, six, seven years. So, what? Yeah. Why has he left? 
why has he left? You know, that that's a good question. Well, one, I think he's become very tired, right? Very tired yeah. at Apple. 25 years of, of very taxing work with the world basically on his shoulders. You know, Steve Jobs was his best friend, right? He went through a very traumatic period of, of losing a best friend to a, a horrible disease and then the weight of the world dropping on his shoulders. He wanted to go back to London. He wanted that flexibility. In a way, his image, his persona became bigger than Apple. He's become a global celebrity, right? You've seen him at fashion shows, concerts, um, very good friends with U2 and different world leaders, right? He, he's become bigger than Apple. He's expanding beyond Apple, uh, so to speak. And, you know, there were some other things going on in the background, behind the scenes. Apple has become more of an operations-focused company where, you know, I wasn't really able to focus on just the look and feel of things, and there was a lot of barriers to launch. Apple's not a company that could take risks anymore, right? Right. Uh, So... Well, it's a really, really good story, and as Carol said before we were getting into it with you, uh, no one truly knows this company uh, as well as you do, Mark, and I highly recommend this story. We'll tweet it out because it gives you a sense of both the importance, a lot of which you just heard from Mark, but also the implications and really the depth to which he has influenced, as Mark said at the top. Uh, arguably the world's most important company, certainly from a product perspective. As Mark wrote, mastermind behind the designs of the iPhone, the iPad, the Apple Watch, the Mac, and the iPod that really took Apple from the brink of bankruptcy in the late 90s to its status as a trillion-dollar company. Those are Mark's words. I mean, it's really, as he said, you know, we'll have to see what the longer-term implications are. Mark Gurman is a tech reporter for Bloomberg. He joined us from our 960 studio in San Francisco. Great song, Runaway Train. That is indeed one of the stories in the magazine this week. It's In fact, it's a Bloomberg Business Week investigation. Uh, it's about really kind of the great model train robbery, but it's kind of a smaller train. So we'll talk about what that means. On the case, you make te- it sound so serious. <laughs> <laughs> it is serious, Hey, Joel. this is serious stuff, Joel. <laughs> it is serious. Hey, the people who lost their trains. I, it's, it's I know. Serious. I know. All right, so let's bring in technology reporter at Bloomberg News, uh, Austin Carr. He wrote the story. Uh, Austin is here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Story, along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. And Austin, it's a great story. And as Jason and I have talked about it, I mean, personal story, interesting story. Tell us a little bit about, set the scene of kind of what you wrote about. Sure. First, I should clarify that I'm both a technology reporter and a model train reporter. Um, I, uh, officially. Well done. Joel, is that official? Title okay, thank you. It is now. Okay. <laughs> Model train correspondent Lionel for Business Week. Expert, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so the, this story uh, is really about a small uh, storied uh, t- railway club in Britain, uh, in the in outside of London, about an hour outside. Um, and they build these small locomotives that can actually run. They're a little bit bigger than the, the Lionel trains that you might have run on your carpet around the Christmas tree when you were a kid. So you can actually, like, kids and adults can ride on it. They, they, they ride atop them, like, like almost like broomsticks, really. Um, they uh, they uh, can carry up to eight eight or so kids, and an adult would ride on the front locomotive, which is actually uh, fed little pieces of coal with little tiny 
Shovels. With little uh, gold shovels. And uh, they, they speed around this, this beautiful track that this club has had uh, and has been operational for decades. They welcome families. And it's really about teaching the community engineering and, and a love of, of things like model trains. Can you imagine a better setting for a birthday party? It, it, it would be spectacular. And, it's, and indeed, it's only 50 pence a ride. Um, and uh, a few months ago, unfortunately, uh, thieves in the, in the dead of night uh, under the moonlight in the UK uh, broke into this model train club, which was actually highly protected. Multiple fences, high security shipping containers where they stored these expensive model locomotives. And these thieves cased the joint, apparently, and broke in, clipped locks, used angle grinders to get into these large sheds, use a wheelbarrow and a hoist to, to, to sort of carry these uh, massive locomotives that weigh, they're small, but they weigh hundreds of pounds. Uh, and they made off of them uh, in, in sort of, yeah, the middle of the night. And these uh, uh, older uh, members of the club who've been around for, for decades working there uh, discovered this crime the next morning, and that's and, what the story's about. And an investigation ensues, but candidly, what you find out is it's not a very good investigation, and it the causes real investigation you... started with Austin. That's right. It starts with you essentially becoming a little bit of a detective. A, a little bit. I, I, I should it's g- a sleuth. <laughs> Gumshoe. Um, Gumshoe, also <laughs> nice. I would say that um, the, uh, the the club members had actually really rallied immediately the next morning right. when one of the members came across the scene. They started collecting clues. Uh, the, the head of the club, Trisha, who's really the, the protagonist of the story, I would argue, um, did a lot of, le- of my legwork before I even got there. She was a detective, uh, a journalist in her own right. And when I, got, uh, I arrived there, I was just surprised not only how secure the place was, but also how much investigative work they'd done. It if anything, the police, I was surprised, yes, had not done as exactly. much. That's I what that's I was what alluding to. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, yeah, we really just sort of dove in. And uh, my editor, Joel, here, uh, uh, thankfully gave me the time to do this because, um, you know, it's... Uh, wait, the- wait. Can I just say, so, so Austin comes to you and he says... Hey, Joel, editor-in-chief here. Uh, I got to do a little train story. Like, we're kind of into training. The little train got stolen. You're like... We were really excited. I said, lucky you. We've got a whole issue devoted to heist. So just to bring it back to the heist issue for a second, like, the magic of this issue is that we can talk about all kinds of different heists, right? Like, this is a physical thing that, you know, some people actually... There's a quality to the story that I think is really special because... Of the amount of pride that this community and the people who own these trains, uh, they take in the work that they do. I mean, they build these things by hand over years. And they were absolutely devastated. And there's a video that accompanies the story that is absolutely worth watching. It devastated them. And you can see how much it devastated them. And it's like they're still in shock over the theft of these trains. So we can do a story like that that has all these emotional levels on it. And at the same time, we can talk about polygamy and like this alleged biodiesel oh, yeah, scam that magazine. goes down. Yeah. Right. And so the mag or or how about like yesterday's with Zeke that we talked about on, on the show and Zeke's story about this like guy who managed to like con both the DEA and drug lords and had millions of dollars flowing. It's just like unbelievable all the different stories that we can say with a heist. So when Austin came to us with a story like this, the staff just got really excited. I think because of the level of intrigue about what motivates these people. Mm-hmm. 
and the trains that they take all this pride in. And then you say model trains, people just get really giddy. <laughs> yeah. I, I completely agree. I mean, the one thing is when I got into the story, um, I definitely had preconceived notions based on the club members being older. And I, I sort of went into this thinking, yeah, it would be an amazing story to tell, perhaps fun. We could bring a lot of attention to it and that would be good, but we get a good story out of it. But I was really shocked and, and pleasantly surprised at, yeah, how much pride they take in, into it. I don't think anyone reads the story in a condescending way. It's in, in a charming way. You're sort yeah. of bowled over by not only how much pride they take in building these trains, but what they bring to the community for years and years and years, just operating this thing as a nonprofit. And that's why I think the story works. Also, shout out to your dad, who I think without him, you probably wouldn't have totally appreciated the interest in which people have in trains. I mean, this is a thing. Yeah, I mean, I, to be honest, yeah, I mean, my, I wouldn't have thought to do this story if I, I didn't um, have studied sort of my dad's peculiar interest in, in Lionel trains over the years. And indeed, we, we make reference not to give a spoiler away in the story, but my uh, already meager inheritance is being uh, rapidly dwindling uh, during the story. In fact, we were fact checking it with my father, and he didn't or want maybe to. Maybe not. Maybe <laughs> not. We'll maybe see. maybe after the story. Just um, but we were fact checking it, uh, and one, some of the locomotives that Lionel locomotives that he's purchased were worth twenty. $2,500, and he didn't want to say that in a text message where my mother was CC'd on <laughs> because she would freak out. See that inheritance? I'm just saying. It, we, we, one would hope. But uh, I think this story, ironically, is a sideways look also into the model locomotive. Everyone has a dad or an uncle or an aunt or someone who was interested in this stuff as a kid. Yeah. And we explore in the story a little bit of, of the changing trends and uh, toy industry in a way that, that it led from model trains to Legos to toy guns to Nintendos and iPhones. And I, I think that that's sort of uh, the business side of the story. But uh, it, it doesn't work unless you have those layers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's funny. I think about a guest we had on yesterday who's bringing back uh, these. Migo. Migo is the company. Yeah. Uh, and it's they're not dolls. They're, like they're action figures. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I've got a Muhammad Ali and uh, a Gene Simmons so on my desk. You had, you had what, Elvis and... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Elvis and Joe Namath. But Austin, you put on the detective hat. How close do you think you got to solving this mystery? 20 seconds. I think it was close. I mean, I, I was banging on some doors where there were security cams that would have caught a glimpse of this car, the getaway vehicle, perhaps zooming by, given it was months after I discovered these uh, security cameras. But I think that's our best shot. Otherwise, one of the websites might have that where they, that these robbers had tried to sell the train to afterward might have caught the IP address of one yeah. of the robbers. And, and that's, I think, is the best lead. And I hope the police look Maybe into it. Maybe you solved it. Maybe you didn't. But you have to... Uh, 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 uh. Check out the magazine. That's right. That's right. Uh, Great story. Uh, Austin Carr, technology reporter and uh, now model train reporter here at Bloomberg News. And, of course, Joel Weber, editor of the magazine. You can find more on Bloomberg Business Week over the weekend on newsstands and at Bloomberg.com. That doesn't roll you well into a summer weekend. I don't know what will. It sounds of Jay-Z. Judith Irwin, she is the founder and CEO of Grasshopper Bank. She joins us on the phone from New York City. We're talking about digital banks, Silicon Valley. Well, they have Silicon Valley Bank. So mm-hmm. the East Coast, we've got Grasshopper. So Judith, uh, tell us a little bit about the market opportunity here because, proud to say, as a New Yorker, we've got a lot of startups here. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And I'm proud to actually move to from Silicon Valley to New York 10 years ago. For that very same reason, I saw a significant growth opportunity, and sure enough, it happened. Um, when we 
I was the founder of Square One Bank when we opened our office in New York in 2006. We had about $200 million being invested a quarter in New York, and last quarter, that number was $4.5 billion for the quarter, so really tremendous opportunity here. Well, talk to us a little bit, Judith, um, about the startup community that you're playing in, right? Because it's kind of a, um, a special space that maybe gets left out when it comes to the banking world. You're, you're absolutely right. I think of it as an ecosystem. Uh, the, the banks, the, the companies that are starting up from scratch, they have entrepreneurs who are very smart about the business they're building, less experienced in financial services potentially, of course not always. And the banks that are set up today are set up there to either manage to the lowest common denominator, so that's as bad as you can possibly be as a client, <laughs> to the very premium clients. And, we're, and we are set up to work with startups from the very earliest days. I like to say a woman and her cat in Chelsea's studio <laughs> making the next UX design to uh, one of our new customers that's closing a $40 million round and is mm. doing really well. But the, there are special needs for startups versus the run-of-the-mill um, average banking client. And at the same time, when you build a bank, you need to build it with scale and repeatability. So what we've done is, starting from scratch, building a highly flexible digital platform with that um, innovative entrepreneur absolutely in mind. And so, Judith, when, when you talk about the, the different needs that a startup uh, has, tell us about that. How is it sure. flexibility? Is it basically a, a little more risk? What, what does it look like? Well, the way I look at it, I always picture um, the entrepreneur doing their banking about 930 at night because that's when they can fit it in. And so that means that when you log into your bank to do your 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 various banking needs, paying vendors, reconciling your account, um, depositing your revenues, there's really no one there at 9.30 at night to help you out. And so you need banking capability that it can be predictive about your needs. So we can provide more of a self-service platform with the just, I assume, a brand spanking new entrepreneur they could be 24, they could be 64, but they've never opened a business account before, never had to file for an EIN. We need to be able to answer those questions for them. And if you call uh, one of the big guys, you're going to be given an 800 number in a call center that's not going to really understand what you need in order to get yourself functioning as a new business. Hey, you know... What's so interesting and I think important when we think about what's going on in the economy, the overall U.S. economy, is what's going on in terms of the startup community, the entrepreneurial community, whether it's getting easier, harder, whether we're seeing more companies start up and what it tells us about economic activity overall. Based on what you're seeing and companies applying you know, for some money to help in terms of their venture, what, what does it tell you about our economic climate right now? I, well, my belief is that it's still very strong. Uh, I don't. I do live in a fairly insulated world. When you live in the the innovation ecosystem, you know it's powered by uh, money from pension funds, from uh, long term contracts. So you don't actually experience as much of the macroeconomic 
mm-hmm. environment as many businesses do. But as soon as you start to need to buy inventory or have things built in China or if you are looking to do anything outside of, you know, what's already in place, there's really no pathway for you. Now, I I, I, I kind of like having no predetermined path, but, you know, that creates additional risk for a business owner uh, that you don't need to think about. So right now, in this time frame, I'm thinking about logistics for companies. That's what's going to be impacted in any sort of issue. So you need to buy something that's manufactured. You need to bring on talent. Any of these issues can really make it difficult for you. Right. There's a lot of money. The last four years have been record-breaking fundraising years right. for the venture firms themselves. So they have a lot of money. Right. But, you know, uh, you really have to fit into a small keyhole. Only about 0.25% right. of all businesses ever receive venture. Well, good stuff and certainly a market needing some action. Judith Irwin, founder and CEO of Grasshopper Bank, joined us on the phone from New York City. Well, coming up, we're going to talk a little Deutsche Bank. That's the talk of Wall Street today as some big job cuts potentially looming there at the big German bank. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, Jason Kelly, and this is Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. John Adams is with us. He's senior investment strategist at BMO Global Asset Management. $240 billion in assets under management. John joining us uh, on the phone from Chicago. Packed full week. John, where are we in this market cycle? Because I feel like there's a lot more talk about indicators suggesting we could see some kind of downturn, market downturn, and economic downturn. Sure. I appreciate you having me on today, uh, Carol and Jason, and good afternoon. Yeah. You know, we, we've really been thinking that uh, the cycle can go on for longer than the market thinks. We've been a bit more optimistic as far as the uh, business cycle uh, for the last couple of years. You heard a lot of strategists calling for a recession toward the end of this year. But we don't think there's any reason why the cycle can't go on uh, at least another couple of years. And it really seems to us that global central banks are sending a message that they're doing whatever they are able to do to really extend the economic cycle. All right. And John, we're going into this weekend, and I feel like all week we've been talking about the G20, this big meeting between President Trump and President Xi. How do you model that at this point, and how do you invest against or with what still seems to be a pretty uncertain outcome? Sure, yeah, I would say it's difficult to invest based on this meeting because there, there is really a, a binary outcome. And I think the best we can hope for this weekend is an agreement to not oppose additional tariffs and to keep talking. And that's really our, our base case. We think it's very unlikely we'll get any kind of large-scale deal which tackles items like, of course, technology transfer or Chinese subsidization of state-owned enterprises, those kinds of things. But I think you are seeing the U.S. business community increase pressure on the Trump administration to really – 
uh, de-escalate the situation at this point. So fundamentals, then do we, let's say we just get kind of status quo, doesn't get any worse in terms of US-China over the weekend. And again, we get this like, we'll continue talking. And so the markets will probably be like, okay, that's, that's good, I guess. But then do we start to go back and focus on fundamentals, start to think about what we're going to get for earnings? What is that picture likely to show? Sure. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think we then focus back on fundamentals, and we have another view that earnings expectations are very low. We do see earnings surprising to the upside, especially in the U.S. Uh, that's part of the reason we're overweight U.S. equities. The other reasons being uh, a more dovish Fed being a key driver, and also decent economic growth. So growth has weakened globally. The U.S. has not been immune from this, uh, but we do see the economic backdrop remaining uh, relatively solid in the second half of this year. And so, John, as you sit back and talk to your colleagues about, say, the Fed, because we heard from Jay Powell, and then I feel like we've heard 17 times from every single Fed speaker over the last 10 days. It's just been, as Carol Masser has dubbed it, Fedpalooza. Uh, how do you assess where they are and where we may be in a month, two months, three months when it comes to interest rates? Sure. And you know, we had our global quarterly multi-asset forum last week here in Chicago. And I would say one of the highest conviction views we have as a team is that we think the Fed will actually cut less than the market expects. So the market's pricing in a cut in July and about three more over the next year. But we think there is some upside pressure with respect to both U.S. wages and prices. Labor markets are still very tight. And you did see core PCE come in a bit above expectations this morning. So, you know, if the Fed's able to cut by, say, 50 basis points, that really might be enough to extend the economic cycle here. Yeah, that, I mean, it is fascinating because at the same time, you're right, when there's there's talk of inflation, there's concerns about the the outlook. And at the same time, we do have also folks like yourself saying this cycle could go on even longer. And as we hit July, we're talking about now the longest uh, economic, U.S. economic expansion on record uh, since we started keeping uh, tabs of it all. So it's fascinating. So, okay, so what areas of the market, the investment environment, do you like? Sure. Yeah, uh, we continue to favor U.S. equities. I talked about the reasons there about earnings surprising to the upside, a dovish Fed. So that's been a high conviction view to, uh, for our team is to be, number one, overweight equities with a focus on uh, the uh, U.S. Uh, what the within the U.S. market, though, in particular? Is it buy-in on everything or what? You know, we've actually reduced our, our overweight to U.S. equities here uh-huh. uh, over the last few months. We were uh, kind of high conviction overweight to the U.S. over the last couple of years. We've gradually uh, tempered that in light of uh, very strong performance. Uh, but we, we do still have a, a, a tilt there uh, mm-hmm. despite the, the uh, strong uh, year-to-date performance. And so what worries you the most uh, about this market as we look toward the second half? Yeah, I would say it's two things. It's, it's, it's trade, which we've talked about, and, and it's the, the, the uh, Fed. And I think uh, communication is going to be vital uh, for the Fed going forward, especially if they do uh, cut rates a couple of times and dub that an insurance cut. Uh, you know, uh, Chair Powell has struggled at times with clearly communicating the Fed's reaction function. So I think that's something that's concerning to the market is if the Fed does cut in July, kind of how that's framed by, uh, by a Chair Powell in the uh, press conference. Is there anywhere where you don't want to be in terms of the investment environment? 
you know, we, we've been underweight credit uh, and also okay. core fixed income. We think both areas look relatively unattractive. If you look at spreads, especially in U.S. high yield, uh, we think they're pretty stretched. Uh, and again, the bond market's really pricing in uh, a much more dire picture than we see. And the, the U.S. 10-year yield, again, dipped below 2% today. And that's a bit a bit more, more dire outcome than what we think is actually going to happen here over the next couple of years. And so, John, you're out in Chicago. I mean, what's the scene like there? I mean, as you talk to your colleagues, you know, not only there at BMO, but uh, elsewhere, I mean, does Chicago feel sort of strong and, and vibrant economically? Yeah, I, I think yeah, the, the commercial real estate market in, in Chicago has, has, has been strong, res, residential as well. I think the, the the job market here is relatively strong as well. So I think we've been uh, relatively optimistic as we kind of inform our, our, our global colleagues about our, our views on uh, both U.S. policy and on uh, U.S. economic growth in general. Cubs are in first place. What's not to love, right? <laughs> right, exactly. There you go. All right. John Adams, sen- John Adams, excuse me, senior investment strategist at BMO Global Asset Management. They oversee about $240 billion out there in Chicago. That's where he joined us from. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.